Welcome back to Elder Sight, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is a special bonus episode that uh, we didn't bother to announce last episode because uh, we didn't know it was coming ourselves. But we realized that uh, this is episode 100. And so when we realized that, it seemed like it made some sense to do something a little bit extra to mark that milestone. And so here we are. Yeah, so what we're going to cover today is a film called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Many of you are probably familiar with this movie. It's, uh, you know, I'm talking about it like it's obscure. It's a major <laughs> cultural touchstone. Very, it's kind of an important movie, a uh, polarizing movie, a strange movie. We'll talk a lot about it. But yeah, this this movie came out in 1984. It was written by Willard Hoyke and Gloria Katz from a story by George Lucas. They also wrote... Um, uh, American Graffiti, I think, and were kind of longtime collaborators with George Lucas. They also wrote uh, Howard the Duck. That kind of sunk their career a little bit. But these guys were were big time collaborators with Lucas and Spielberg and the whole uh, University of California film crew that came out of the 1970s with you know John Milius and Francis Ford Coppola and that whole crew that kind of hung out together. Obviously, this movie was directed by Steven Spielberg as well. Yeah, the, the really important thing is no lines of dialogue actually written by George Lucas, which is, uh, well, that's really the question to ask when you're going to see a yeah. movie or not. <laughs> All right. Well, when we realized that we were going to hit this milestone, uh, we realized that a little bit earlier this year, though, it was not entirely clear exactly at what point that was going to happen. But when we realized this, we decided to have an extra vote among our Patreon supporters at our higher tiers to figure out what special thing we should do. But Brandon and I, we decided what was going to be on that ballot because we didn't want to just do more of the same, right? There wasn't some, you know, really special story that we wanted to make sure we hit at episode 100. What we wanted to do really was to step into a space that's adjacent to what the show normally covers for this you know, milestone episode here. And so we settled on putting two different types of stories on the ballots. Uh, one of them was screen stories. And obviously that is what has won here. But we also put some scary books for kids on the ballot. And in that category, we had Banicula. And we also had the very first Goosebumps book. Those actually did all right in the voting. They came in second and third. And it was actually pretty close. Temple of Doom did not run away with this, uh, with this vote. But... Uh, what did receive absolutely zero votes are the things that actually are the origin of our friendship 15 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and this was a, an episode of the occult detective TV show, Angel. And then we also had on there an episode of the young Superman TV show, Smallville. And... Uh, Zero votes for those. We are never going to get people to get us to cover Smallville or Angel, which is such a shame. We have a lot to say about both those shows. It's, a, <laughs> it's not really a shame because we still talk about it too much off mic. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I don't know if it would be entertaining for anyone either. But yeah, those Angel in particular is one I've been kind of itching to get back to uh, myself. Uh, I just they're just not cultural touchstones anymore, which is so strange. They were so big when they were on the air. They were. I, and I get that Smallville maybe has gone by the wayside, but I, Angel is just a, it's a quintessential. It is the quintessential occult detective story 
on screen for sure. I mean, some people might argue with me about that. In fact, that would be a fun conversation to have, but I think it's extraordinarily important and really kind of crystallizes and distills an entire, you know, sort of batch of stories, uh, st- you know, story genre that we cover here on the show. But uh, and it may actually have gotten one vote. I should I should be more fair to it than that. I think one <laughs> or possibly even two people voted for it, but but Smallville literally got zero votes. No, but I mean just like people they have and it's the second time I've put Smallville on a ballot and zero. <laughs> Zero, zero. But while we're talking about voting and this vote in particular, I I just want to use this episode as kind of an opportunity to talk just a little bit of housekeeping for a minute or two here before we get into actually talking about some fun stuff, you know, the substance of the show. Because I used this vote as an opportunity to experiment with really just even how we're holding the votes to begin with, because we had to change up the way that we do the voting earlier this year because of changes in the service that we had been using. And so for this vote, I actually tried using Patreon's native polling option, which we had decided long ago not to use. And well, it turns out that it's still pretty terrible for for our purposes. I'm sure it's fine for what other people are doing, but it's terrible for us. So we're just going to continue to send links to votes via SurveyMonkey. Uh, We're just going to send those to your Patreon inbox. And we know that that's more of a hassle than getting an email from us, like right into your real email address, which is how we used to do it. And we know that's a hassle because, you know, a lot of you just don't get the Patreon messages forwarded to you, which means you have to remember to go look for them. And then just one more note on the topic of Patreon messages. There are actually some supporters out there at our higher tiers who have not used their nominations or their commissions. It's possible that you just don't want to use them or you're holding on to them for a while. And of course, you can absolutely do that. But just in case you know, you're listening to this episode and the reason you've not used those is because you're not sure how to do that, you've got two messages from me about that in your Patreon inbox where you can find out how to use those benefits. And we'd love to hear from you about that. But all right, let's uh, let's actually get into the substance of the show here. So I thought, Brandon, we might ease into talking about um, how handsome Harrison Ford is by, uh, <laughs> by reflecting a little bit on the highlights of doing 100 episodes of this show. I mean, at this point, you and I have recorded close to 300 podcast episodes together across the sort of three big things that we do together. But there have been some really fun elements that are unique to Elder Sign, I think. That's absolutely true. Before I talk about that, I also want to say there is an Indiana Jones episode of Angel that's pretty good, uh, pretty great episode of TV. And uh, <laughs> that's that's the last thing I'll say about that. It's it's a fantasy show. It's a great episode. It's got some real weight in the arc of the series as well. So uh, I don't know. If that doesn't convince you to watch watch Angel. I don't know what will. So anyway, yeah, let's talk about Elder Side in particular. It's been a blur, honestly, because we've recorded so many episodes, not just of Elder Side, 100 episodes is a lot, uh, but also the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, guesting on ATOS, all the Patreon episodes we do. So when I was thinking about just what what is uh, go, like going on with Elder Sign. What distinguishes it for me, thinking back on recording 100 episodes of this show, I think about the writers that I've been introduced to, people like Karen Russell and Gogol and Jeff Vandermeer and Thomas Ligotti and Caitlin R. Kiernan, and all these really phenomenal stories with real weight and substance uh, that use the genre of the weird in particular, as opposed to to wonder, though Karen Russell, I think, kind of veers into wonder a little bit, um, to talk about things that are important to them as writers. Russell talks a lot about 
colonialism and the impacts of that or immigration or racism even. Jeff Vandermeer is just amazing. Thomas Ligotti writes some of the best horror we've come across. And so I've loved being introduced to some of these writers. I mean, and then we also get some classic mocking stories, particularly in most light, which is just so much fun riffing on the detective genre, throwing a call elements in there. I guess you and I, what we really love is finding stories that are particularly about occult detectives. I think that's why we <laughs> started this show was to, uh, was to find writers who people who write really great occult detective fiction. But in pursuit of that, we've come across so many great stories and I love horror as a genre. So I'm so pleased we've been able to cover so many wonderful horror stories. And I've just loved it. I've loved doing 97% of the episodes that we've done for Elder Sign. It's been a, such a pleasure to uh, read these stories and talk about them. And I think that uh, more so than the other shows, the variety that we do is just great. The variety of genres within Weird, the variety of writers. I've loved it. It's been so much fun. Yeah, and I think it's been even a year and a half since we've had a story that we really were just like, I might not have read that five times if I didn't have to. Right. But, <laughs> and, and that's, I think, one of the things that does make doing this show, uh, you know, in, in contrast with especially the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, what makes this show so awesome is not just the variety itself, but the way that we are being exposed to variety is that our Patreon supporters are choosing at this point in the show are choosing what we cover entirely. And so there've been whole ballots that have gone out with stories I have never read. There was one ballot that went out with all writers I had never read before. And that is amazing. And of course, this is also the show where we get the most contribution from the commission side of things. We, we get them on ATAS and Lower Decks quite a bit as well. But Elder Sign in particular is the, the show that receives the most commissions, which is when listeners say, no, 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 guys, hold on. Like, you've really got to go read this writer or these five writers and uh, you know that you've never read before, that you haven't talked about on the show, at least that I want to hear you talk about. And that has been just such an amazing experience. I mean, the bookshelf, um, you know, like I, you know, I, I'm exiled into the basement forever now because this is <laughs> this is just where the books are, and the books just kind of reproduce, well, like tribbles basically because of the the way that we do the show, and it's just been so so much fun. It's been so exciting. It really has been, and uh, yeah, I, I guess we just can't emphasize that enough. I guess what we love about Elder Sign is uh, even though we're not getting enough occult detective stories that are <laughs> truly excellent, we're getting so much awesome variety. And that's because of our supporters. And that means a whole lot to us as well as the as people running the show in the network. So yeah, what a, what a great 100 episodes. And uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. This has been a real pleasure. And at the heart of this, then, Brandon, I guess, right, is what we're getting at here is that this show works because we've got really amazing listeners, people who are really engaged with the content of the show, people who read along with us or uh, have thought about what things we should cover and are actively contributing to the show in that way. And what it means is that we could not really do this show or this show certainly would not be for us as awesome as it is without your participation and your support. And so we owe all of you really just a huge thank you. You are you are this show. Yeah, thank you so much. But uh, we're here to talk about this Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about how we're going to talk about it. This is, this is going to be a bit of a lighter episode, not as deep as a lot of the stuff we do. But Glenn, I'll let you talk about what our, what our plan is for talking about this episode. 
Right. We're going to take an attack here where we're just going to do a kind of genre examination of this movie. And this is a movie that comes up, I don't know, I'd say 8% of the regular episodes we've covered, we've invoked this movie, right? Which is why we threw it on the ballot here. But we're going to talk about this movie from two different genre perspectives. One, we're going to talk about this episode as a weird fiction story. And then we're also going to talk about it as an adventure fiction story. But I think actually, Brandon, before we even get into doing any of that, really looking at it through these lenses, we should talk about this movie in our lives. It's a big movie, as you joked earlier in the episode. So what's your what's your history with this one? Yeah, I have a weird history with this movie. Uh, it was kind of a, a forbidden movie in my house growing up. It wasn't a movie that I wasn't explicitly not allowed to watch. It was just one we didn't watch. And part of that had to do with uh, my parents' experience seeing it. My mom had just given birth a year before to my older sister. This movie came out a year before I was born. And uh, my parents went out on a date and it was my dad and my mom and my mom's brother went to see it. And the way my mom tells it is that my dad and my uncle uh, trapped my mom between them and wouldn't let her leave the theater during any of the movie, which she desperately wanted to do. Uh, so the movie became just like one of these things that we didn't talk about. But then probably by the time I was 11 or so, I loved Raiders of the Lost Ark, as like I think any kid does. Uh, when I was 11 or so, I was staying home from school. My mom was working. Both my parents were working. And we had a friend who um, had a bag of videotapes that were great, like stay at home from school videotapes to watch. And I think I was at her house and I picked up Temple of Doom because I'd never seen it and laid on the couch as a sick child and watched it and hated it. And then probably watched it only one or two more times since then. So I never really watched it as like a movie, never really thought of it as a good movie, uh, I would say I always had negative thoughts about it. And so this was really fun for me to revisit. And I'm sure I'll talk about what I think about the movie. We'll probably have some closing thoughts or maybe give off the cuff reviews of it uh, <laughs> at the end of the episode. I have a lot of thoughts about this movie, actually. And um, I don't know, maybe I'll write something up for the for the show to post on show notes or something like that. Because it's a deeply strange movie, a deeply jarring movie. And I still don't like the opening uh, 15 minutes of the movie, even though I found reasons why they work within the larger film, the scope of the film itself. But yeah, my experience of this movie is is largely strange. I don't really have an association with this movie other than it kind of being a family tradition to not talk about and not watch <laughs> having seen it once. And then maybe just one other time in my, in my late teens or early twenties. And so it was a real treat, actually, to rewatch it now with an eye towards uh, filmmaking craft and then also the types of elements we're talking about today, having read so many weird fiction stories and what this movie's drawing on. Um, so I will say this. I like the movie now. I don't think I think it's a mess, but I like it. I guess that's the what I'll say at the top of the show. And then we'll we'll talk more about it as we continue. But Glenn, what's your history with this movie? Well, yeah, of the the three original Indiana Jones films, right? This is the one that's regarded as being perhaps fun and and certainly commercially successful, but critically kind of a failure. 
uh, though I'll have some thoughts about that as well. But yeah, my history with this movie is that I have seen it at least 100 times. Um, never in the theater. It's actually the only Indiana Jones movie that I've never seen in a, a theater. I saw Last Crusade when it came out uh, with my dad. My dad and I went to see that together, which was awesome. And then I also went and saw the fourth movie to, together. Uh, that yeah, was, I, think, I guess I don't even consider that a movie, but maybe I mean, right. in 10 but years I'll feel the same way <laughs> I feel about <laughs> Temple of Doom. Who knows? But then I also saw Raiders in, in Denver. The, the theater that was closest to me was an independent theater that did like midnight showings of, of uh, you know, older movies, movies not in, you know, current, current run. Uh, and this is one that I went down and watched there, which was, that's always a fun experience to do, right? People who have stayed up until midnight to watch a cult classic film. Uh, but yeah, so Temple of Doom remains the only movie I've never seen in a theater, the only indie movie I've never seen in a theater. But my experience with watching this movie is that it's not clear to me that I ever sat down and watched this movie, uh, like, you know, on a couch, like I did actually for this episode. <laughs> because what I did as a kid was I would have this movie on in the background all the time while I was building Legos. Uh, this movie, uh, the three original Star Wars movies as well, and then the animated Hobbit movie were the movies that I would just put on while I was building Legos. And I didn't really watch them. You know, I treated them like audio. You know, I was listening to them and uh, turned out maybe I just liked listening to Harrison Ford talk while I build Legos, I sure. think is really the, the through line there. And um I had never at all watched this movie since I was 13 or 14 when it really went out of that rotation and was replaced with Aliens, uh, in fact, at that point. So it's actually been decades since I watched this movie. And having internalized that this is the bad Indiana Jones movie, you know, of the three, um, I was actually surprised at how much I really enjoyed it and actually... Though it is still almost certainly the worst of those three movies, it's much, much better than I expected it to be. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Like I said, the movie's a, a complete mess, and I'll get into reasons why that is after we do a little bit of a deep dive into the genre elements. But it has a lot to do with the, the structure of the movie uh, and the vehicle for storytelling that they choose. But I was also shocked. This movie is crafted very well. Harrison Ford gives maybe the best performance of the three movies, I think, in this one. I love his performance in this movie. I love the choices Harrison Ford makes as an actor. I used to hate Short Round. I love Short Round. I never really had any feelings about Willie Scott. I mean, I played the Lego Indiana Jones video games. And in those games, each like character has a special thing that they do. And Willie Scott's power was to scream and break glass. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Which is really funny. Uh, I did not find, I found her character to be kind of great. You know, I think upon reflection, what I love about this movie is that it's full of in camera effects and practical sets. And it feels like a real movie in the way a lot of the CGI fests we get today just feel like straight up cartoons. Uh, and this movie has its cartoonish elements, but there's it's aged well because it's it's crafted well. And that's I think what I loved about it. It's I mean it's extremely well crafted. I I had maybe a slightly different experience with the visuals, which is that uh, I I finally actually realized uh, there are a lot more sound stages and matte paintings than I than I thought there were. I yeah. thought there was a lot more location shooting than there actually I was. Like that's that that not not only is that not a jungle, that's that's not even outside. But uh, well, what know. right? Well, that that's because. Uh, 
the script had to be approved by the governments in uh, countries where they wanted to film. And India said, um, hey, this movie is actually deeply offensive. And if you shoot it here, we want final cut uh, rights. We want to have the final edit on the movie. And we don't eat monkey brains or bugs. This is deeply offensive. Uh, maybe they didn't like the needless shooting of the thuggies at the end of the movie, which is like past the point where anybody needs rescuing and the soldiers show up and just shoot people. Uh, that to me was actually kind of an uncomfortable moment upon rewatching. But yeah, the Indian government said you can't film here. So they filmed the location stuff in Sri Lanka, but 80% of the movie was shot on sound, on a soundstage or various sound stages. And so it's really artificial feeling. And I'll just spoil it here. That's why I think Steven Spielberg goes so heavy into the Busby Berkeley style opening to really emphasize that this movie is going to be highly theatrical and highly artificial. Uh, I, I still think the opening kind of fails on some levels, but um, I think he had to do that because otherwise the movie would have really felt disjointed visually. I, I really want to talk about that opening because I love the opening. You've you have laid your cards on the table here, man, <laughs> and saying that you don't like it, but I, that's clearly part of the seeing this story through an adventure fiction lens, or at least you know that's where we should talk in more detail about what's in that scene. But but I think we can use thinking about that scene as a way to get into uh, using the lens of weird fiction to to think about this story, and I'll I'll, I'll just you know, kick us off here with an observation or, or two about you know how, the ways in which this is a weird fiction story. The adventure that Indiana Jones is going to have here in, in this story is that he discovers that, you know, there's, there's a little part of the world here that is not what it seems to be, that is not what it should be, and that what's underneath is this horrifying and also at least slightly supernatural uh, thing that he's going to have to you know, confront. He doesn't ever faint, right? So that's how we know it's not actually a Lovecraft story. And, you know, right. it's very much an adventure story and that he saves the day and, you know, wins in the in the end. But that's the real core of the weird fiction element there. But how this works, right? The way that we buy into the idea that there might be this hidden world within our own, right? This this secret cult that's doing these horrible potentially actually even supernatural things, you know, murdering people, human sacrifices as part of their worship, is that we actually start this story completely in the mundane world. Though, in this case, right, the perfectly mundane world is uh, totally insane <laughs> and adventurous world where people are jumping out of airplanes on inflatable rafts and surviving. Yeah, let's not talk about that. And then the green screen uh, raft ride down the mountain that gets them into a river. I, you know, listen, avoid chase scenes involving rafts and minecarts. That's my number one piece <laughs> of advice for filmmaking, for prospective uh, filmmaking students here. But uh, yeah, so what, one of the things visually that actually really works in the opening to uh, give us a sense that we are going into a magical world is the elephant head that Willie Scott comes out of that's decorated a lot like the horror sets later on in the movie with the red light and blue fog coming out of it. These are color motifs in the movie that are used actually to great effect, especially in a scene later on when Indiana Jones stops being evil 
and he's standing in front of a mine shaft and he's backlit by that blue fog and the kids push in the mine cart with the with the light on it to light him up from the front. And it's kind of this, it's just, it's, it's one of the most iconic indie moments, I think in any of the three movies, but the camera in the opening scene pushes through that red fog into an unobserved space, basically where there's a Busby Berkeley movie uh, taking place, which is to say (laughs) a 1930s musical scene. And Hey, Spielberg's finally getting to make his musical. So good for him. He's, he's not just done it here. He's doing West side story that's coming out real soon. Um, And so, yeah, I, I really had to think a lot about how this opening serves the movie because I hate it so much. Um, the Busby Berkeley thing is just one reason, as I said, that really, uh, sets the visual stage for the audience, uh, who was going to experience a lot of theatricality and artificiality in the film because they couldn't film on location. They had to build sets everywhere. Um, but then also the color motif is set up in this opening scene. And then, um, what, what I really have the problem with Uh, which is a problem I have throughout the movie is that Indiana Jones uh, in this movie, though he's way more active as a protagonist, like his role as protagonist is far more important in this movie than in, in the other two movies, he's constantly being rescued by other people. And that's even set up in this opening scene as well. Also, I just, you come off the end of Raiders uh, with just nonstop adventure real locations indiana jones comes in as this rugged adventurer and in this one he's wearing roger moore's tux from octopussy basically right. and doing a yeah. james bond thing <laughs> even though we get this constant stream of dialogue in the opening third of the movie about how indiana jones has gone on all these other adventures that we don't know about yeah, I mean, this is 100% is a James Bond opening, which I had never recognized before. Like just this cold open, it's a, a side adventure that actually does not at all matter. You could still have the rest of this movie without this. You could just have a much easier way for them to end up stranded in in India, you know, with you know no transportation, needing to find a way to Delhi so they can get on a plane and get back to America. You don't need this type of opening, and so it's you know an homage, I think, very much to James Bond movies, but it is also an homage to the type of serialized adventure stories that Indiana Jones is is based on. These adventure stories also with a lot of weird fiction elements in them. And I actually really appreciate that about this. I think there are some choices that I would make very differently. But the thing I really want to quibble with you about, Brandon, is the notion that Indiana Jones is being rescued by people here. I, I don't see it that way. What I see here is that Indiana Jones has a team. Right, that these are people who are working together on this mission. That you know he's out treasure hunting and he's got a team, people who he employs. That this is a business that they they run together. Why he needs to do that when he's an eminent professor? <laughs> Unclear. I don't know. Maybe he's got some gambling debts or something. <laughs> Right. Also how he comes to employ a child, even though we do get a little backstory, you know, like Indiana Jones caught short round stealing from him and then makes him drive his car and stuff. And then, of course, the love story in the movie is the friendship between Indy and short round. I think all the short round stuff works so well. I was really down on it when I sat down to watch this movie again. Like it was like the thing I was least looking forward to. 
and I actually love it. But Short Round actually saves India a lot. That's explicit even in the text of the movie. Like, I'll save you, Indiana Jones. I need to save Indy. Short Round says these lines. Short Round says things like, if you listen to me, you'll like like die a lot less often. You know, yeah. uh, stuff, stuff like that. Uh, Willie Scott is totally brought into the story because of contingent events, which is to say like the just um, not, uh, things that could have been otherwise. And that's also the way this movie functions. This movie, unlike the other Indiana Jones movie, really functions on a logic of absurdity of everything that happens could have been otherwise. And um, it's a strange tack to take in uh, the, the, a series of movies that otherwise is really looking at uh, like predestination, God's power in the world. And so, yeah, this is a non-Christian world uh, deeply rooted in contingency. Um, and so, yeah, I like, I like that you're viewing it as a team thing. But the first thing Indiana Jones does is threaten Willie Scott's life. And then the first person he punches is a woman. And so the opening of the movie feels very bizarre to me in that sense. Uh, she comes along. She ends up with the vial because because she's looking for a diamond, the antidote that Indy needs in order to, to live. She ends up having it. He roots around in her dress. Short round gives the best line of any Indiana Jones movie of all time, no time for love, Indy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's awesome. But yeah, so for me, the opening sets up a lot of what we're going to see in the movie, but it doesn't feel like a team. Short Round and Indy are definitely a team. That's awesome. And I love it. Get my stuff Short Round. That's awesome. It's actually Get Our Stuff, which I just love. And Short Round always knows where Indiana Jones' shirt is, which is like comes re becomes really important later on in the movie. Um, but yeah, this opening... It just doesn't work for me. The my wife loved it. She and I watched the movie. She had only she had never seen it before, so she had no idea what she was in store of and she in store for. And she loved the opening of this movie because it's so fun and upbeat and uh, kind of a strange cartoon in a way with with all of these like you know car to plane to raft to the in, uh, Indian village. And I was like, you know, seeing it through her eyes, I was like, okay, I can see how people can enjoy this. But um, yeah, it, that, I guess that's that's what I'll say for now about the way this opening, <laughs> I feel about the opening of this movie. Well, I think, uh, you know, to, to, to side with Rachel here, right? She and I both grew up in climates that, that actually permit a lot of sledding. Yes. And so I think that opening <laughs> sled ride, right? Like that's, that's the, for me, that's always the thing. Like that's my, the sled adventure of my dreams. And I grew up on a hill in a place that has winter for four months out of the year and did a ton of sledding in my life. In fact, uh, that was really my experience with this film as a kid was sled for a long time in the morning, then come in in the afternoon, put this movie on and build Legos that I got at Christmas time. <laughs> Basically, that's what that movie is for me. But also, I just love of the musical number, right? The opening musical number, the Cole Porter in Mandarin is just brilliant. And I think Club Obi-Wan is like, that's where I live in my dreams, I think. Yeah, it's awesome. I will say this. So the soundtrack to this movie won an Academy Award and the opening scene has to be the reason why. I mean, even though some of the themes of the, the uh, musical, the leitmotifs of the movie are really good. I do love the soundtrack to this movie a lot. Uh, the opening... Uh, scene of the movie in Club Obi-Wan, John Williams is playing with themes of anything goes and doing 
the heroic adventure soundtrack as well and just weaving them seamlessly together. It's, it's breathtaking. It's a great piece of cinematic music. I have a lot to say about the score, but I want to save that for for later in the conversation. Let's get back to thinking about the story as a bit of weird fiction. But I think that this uh, divergence through the the f- opening part of the movie, which we have so far not actually called the first act, even though we frequently you know talk about stories in terms of usually the the three act structure. And I think certainly the reason I have not been using that term here is that this is not the first act of the movie. It's the prologue to the movie. And this allows for an unusual structure to this film that does have a three-act structure. The second act is when we get into actually the weird fiction elements, when we, we start seeing what's actually going on. Like I would make that marker there being the moment when Indy is uh, assaulted in his room. That's the moment when we're going to enter the second act. But we have this very long prologue here in the beginning that is to reassure us that this story is taking place in the real world. It's just the regular real world. You know, everything is is as normal. And then we're going to be introduced in the second act to, nope, actually, everything is not normal. This is a world actually where people can have their still beating hearts ripped out of their chest, you know, without any tools uh, and just with some <laughs> prayers. And there's like some magic rocks that maybe are from outer space or something. We don't know. We'll talk about that, right? That we get into in the second act. What comes between this prologue and the start of the second act is incredibly short. There's almost no actual first act to this story. And I think that's what this prologue is actually doing, which clearly they would have written after they wrote the rest of the story, right? It's like, a, how do we actually get Indy to this village in need of, a, you know, getting someplace to, you know, be enlisted actually by these villagers to go on this adventure? How do we get him to that? Because we need more introduction to the character and more introduction to the world. We need to sit in the adventure story for, you know, at least 45 minutes before we get to the weird part. And this feels very tacked on. And that might be part of why, you know, it doesn't really work for you. It it is a part of the reason why it doesn't work for me. Once the movie gets to the Indian village and Indiana Jones becomes an occult detective and these Indian villagers in a remote village in India somehow speak English enough, like well enough to explain to him like magic stones and needing to go to Pancot Palace and things like that. Um, But I don't want to, you know, I'll make like little jokes, but I don't I don't want to hate on this movie or like riff on why reasons why it's incoherent. You can find terrible YouTube videos to waste your time on doing that. Um, but it's it's humorous, right? Because these are people that where they're introduced to us uh, as being kind of frightening visages, at least when we meet the elder of this village. Willie Scott is terrified. Indy bows. So we have this push and pull between the characters that I really like that works really well. And then we get scenes where they're speaking English, but then we get the uh, main exposition scene where Indy is translating this dialect to Willie and Short Round. Um, I think the village scene works great. It's a great way to give Indy the mission brief, you know, where he goes into the detective's office and is like told, "Eh, there's this problem that you need to solve and it's mystical. And you have to do this because you're here to do this. This is why you ended up in this village. Uh, I think it works great. I love it. Um, And then, yeah, they go to Pancot Palace and 
I think you're right to say that the second act starts when, when Indy is attacked in the room after a really like genuinely funny and pretty well performed uh like should we shouldn't we have sex scene between Indy and Willie Scott. I, I like the dialogue there. I think it's pretty funny. The writers of this movie loved screwball comedy and uh they totally are riffing on that here in, in this moment. But for me, the tone of the movie, the tone of the second act, which is a horror movie, it's just a horror movie, really starts at the banquet scene, which is another scene I really dislike in the movie, because there's a really interesting exposition and dialogue going on there between Indy, the prime minister who has a dubious role in the movie, and the British colonel who comes to shoot the Indians at the end, um, talking about the history of the region, the thuggy cult, Kali worship, human sacrifice, British colonialism, all this great stuff is going on there. And Spielberg and Lucas felt that this scene was too heavy on exposition. And then so they added all these insert shots of the disgusting feast. And uh, to me, that is another scene that doesn't work because I never noticed the exposition there taking place when I was a kid. All you notice is Willie Scott groaning and fainting and short round making funny comments. No, ab- absolutely. I loved that stuff when I was a kid. Chilled monkey brains was a family joke, you know, growing up. Like I would uh, at, a, at a restaurant with my family and, you know, anyone would ask what I was going to order. The answer always was chilled monkey brains. My dad would <laughs> laugh and my sister would tell me to shut up. You know, I, I, that's that was the routine. That was, that was the screwball comedy routine that my family <laughs> had around this movie. I had at some point, I guess, maybe internalized some of that exposition as well. What I had not internalized or could not possibly have known the last time I saw this movie is that the actor who plays this uh, this British India Army captain uh, is Philip Stone, who's uh, the bartender, the ghost bartender in The Shining. And that was immediately apparent to me just I just even before I saw him, I just knew it from the voice. And wow, I just it 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 made it made the horror story at the core of this movie that much more horrifying to feel like I might be in some weird crossover with The Shining. He played Lloyd. Oh, no, sorry. No, you're right. He didn't play Lloyd. It's not the bartender. It's Grady. He played Grady. Wow. You know, I, I only know Lloyd's name from that movie because uh, Lloyd. Lloyd's was one of my favorite bars in Fishtown that my wife and I would go to like once a week after all the other gastro pubs closed. Uh, great cocktail bar. Their business cards have the carpet pattern from The Shining on the back of it, though it's not named for The Shining, even though that's a great name for the bar. It's named for the <laughs> for the uh, owner's dad, who was also named Lloyd. But they really they figured out how to how to make both work. Well, thinking about bars as well. I mean, one of the things I love about Club Obi-Wan at the opening is uh, that we get a really great cocktail scene there as well, uh, where I spent a lot of time on this watch trying to figure out what drink. They, <laughs> I knew they, you would. I had. knew you'd do that. Yeah, where's like what drink is the poison in? And I'm actually pretty sure that it's supposed to be the 20th century cocktail, which is a strange mix of lemon juice and creme de cocoa. It's an absolutely delicious drink. Pretty sure that's what that was. But that scene, that your dining scene, I think, 
think stands in strong contrast with the banquet scene here at the palace, where the one obviously stands out when you're a kid. Uh, I think Club Obi-Wan stands out a lot more to me as an adult. Also, you know, Elizabeth and I haven't been to a bar for a drink in like you know, like years, <laughs> literally at this point. And uh, that's the real fantasy life that I that I engage in now. But yeah, I, I could barely tolerate actually the chilled monkey brains and the bugs stuff at that banquet scene. And just, it really graded on me and I wanted to, to just go away so we could just focus on this bit of exposition, this conversation that they're having that is extraordinarily compelling. It's so awesome. Yeah, I, I was blown away by how good this conversation is. And again, Harrison Ford's performance is so good in this movie. It's so good. And I, I know, you know, a lot of people don't don't like this movie, but I would just watch it for his performance, for carrying the movie through all of this stuff. I mean, the one of the things that really bugs me about the banquet scene, apart from what we've been talking about, is just it's it's edited so frantically when the conversation is edited in a completely different way. So you have cuts to people, you know, close up eating bugs or stuffing baby snakes down their throat and then the chilled monkey brains and then Willie Scott and short round making jokes about maybe the Maharaja likes older women, you know, which is great. <laughs> short round's great in this movie. He has really the best lines. Um, and it just doesn't work, but it's necessary to set up what the tone of the movie is going to be. Spielberg is saying, this is a horror movie from here on out. And it really is. It's a horror movie until we get to the fight uh, at the end after Short Round burns Indy and saves him and basically saves the day in that moment. So... Yeah, I mean, it's that shot that you were talking about earlier, that iconic, iconic shot in the sort of blue fog. That's the moment when, you know, that's signaling we're in a new genre now or, you know, back in the genre that this movie started in, that the horror story, the weird fiction story is over. Now it's all weird roller coaster rides, uh, you know, uh, on a blue screen. And uh, and it's a it's a brilliant way to demarcate that, to just give us that shot of Indy, you know, back in his outfit, back in his costume, you know, posing heroically to say, now we're back in the heroic adventure story. That's all absolutely brilliant. And I love the way though, too, right, that in this banquet scene, and of course it would work so much better without all the weird, you know, snake surprise nonsense, that we are building up a sense of dread, actually, in this conversation where Indiana Jones, and you're right, Harrison Ford is doing an amazing job with the acting here because you can see that he's playing Indy as someone who's uh, uh, trying to keep his distance, but trying to not look like he's keeping his distance to, you know, quote another Harrison Ford <laughs> movie there, right? That, that, that there's a, a level at which Indy is acting and Harrison Ford is acting that Indy is acting here, where he's trying to casually suss out some information because, yeah, he's an cult detective here on a on a mission he's investigating at this point he's pumping these guys for information and uh philip stone who's playing the the, the captain here of this uh the, the indian army captain here is this kind of you know bumbling guy who doesn't realize what's happening here but the prime minister knows exactly what's going on and that dynamic their triangle in that conversation is brilliant and it's just stupid to interrupt it with all the other all the other stuff because it actually undercuts the tone of dread that that conversation is building right it, it, it's it's a mess as i said so much of this movie's a mess but i will say this i say that because it's true but what i really want to say in praise of this movie is that 
There is no other movie like this. This is the only movie I've ever seen that is anything like this in terms of tonal shifts, in terms of balancing adventure and horror, in terms of managing Indiana Jones as an occult detective and then becoming the adventurer and then getting in over his head and doing all this stuff. It's all because of Indi- it's all because of Harrison Ford's Harrison Ford's performance. It's it's genuinely a masterpiece. I, my favorite moment of acting in this movie, and this is all Harrison Ford's acting decisions, is when they're in the trap room with the spikes coming down. Before the spikes come down, after the doors have closed, Harrison Ford just tells Short Round to go like lean up against the wall, you know, and don't touch anything, and he does it with this just compassionate, loving chuckle that communicates like, you're not in my way, kid. I love having you along with me, but right now I've got to figure some stuff out. So I need you out of the way. And it's so loving the way he does it that doesn't communicate like brusqueness or irritation. I just, I thought it was just such a brilliant acting choice. And I, you know, that's the kind of stuff great actors bring to roles, even in roles we don't even think about because we're familiar with this stuff as kids. We don't really think about the craft that goes into it or the decisions the actors make. But really watching it again now, I'm, I'm genuinely in awe of Harrison Ford's performance in this film. He's, he's also incredibly handsome. He's so good looking. You know, he's, <laughs> it's not like the kind of good looking like the Tom Hiddleston looks good in a pair of slacks because the indie pants are cut really out of fashion, even for the 80s. You know, they're 30s and 40s style pants. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he definitely got into great shape for this movie. All the shirtless scenes really work well for me on that level. Yeah. I mean, this was a, this was a time machine, of course, right? Watching, (laughs) watching him this young, I'd forgotten that he was just a handsome, handsome man. (laughs) He was 42 in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to never think about that again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But so that, that scene, you know, then we get the kind of Goonies adventure stuff that's going on before they reach the, uh, Kali ritual. And all of that is adventure stuff, kind of, but it's horrifying, right? The bug hallway, the danger, the people that are dead, like the gross uh, practical models they made of like the dead people. All of that is giving us these horror vibes with something familiar that we know from the opening scene of Raiders, right? But then we see the Kali ritual and the movie just kicks into hardcore weird fiction territory where it's just... Child slavery, gem mining, magic stones, and blood rituals. And it's Indiana Jones is, uh, he, he witnesses, and, and we've talked about this in the past when we talk about Indiana Jones, his role primarily as a witness to this stuff, to bring the audience in to the adventures he's on. So he's done investigating, and now he can see and experience for himself the thing that he needs to solve rather than finding a library or figuring out lore, he witnesses it. This scene, when they get down there and they watch this ritual, this is essentially, you know, this is really, I think, what Lovecraft had in mind in a a story that we've not covered yet on the show, which is the the horror at Red Hook, which is uh, about a cult uh, akin to this, you know, something that's based on or, you know, is using some actual names from the real world, historical names, but really fictionalizing what that religion is up to. Uh, And then 
in that story, Lovecraft is transplanting that to Red Hook, New York. But the descriptions that we get of worship services there and the basement um, uh, temple, essentially in 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 Brooklyn. I don't know that you know George Lucas ever read that story, though he probably did. But it, this scene really feels like this is uh, just an adaptation of that scene, you know, shifted in location and dialed up to eleven a little bit. But just yeah, straight out of uh, you know, one of the the sort of core Lovecraft stories, though also the Lovecraft story that is a strong contender for most racist Lovecraft story, you know, in a pretty, pretty racist canon of stories. Yeah. This is a strong contender for the most racist Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> so I, I mean, mean, clear winner, they, clear they winner. Work together. Yeah. There. Uh, yeah. But I, I will say um, that for me, this scene reminded me more of the way Robert E. Howard writes like cult horror. This had way more of that kind of sword and sorcery vibe to it in a strange way, just because of the sets. And the way I think about uh, horror movies from like the 30s and 40s, that level of theatricality here, real, it, it, something about it reminds me of Robert E. Howard's descriptive writing of this sort of stuff that we've come across in some of his horror writing. And uh, this, this to me was more Robert E. Howard-esque than, than Lovecraft-esque. Well, yeah, I can get behind that 100%, right? In the sense that this is taking place on location rather than the horror has come to America, which tends to be, you know, Lovecraft's deal. Though Lovecraft's idea with the horror at Red Hook, though, is that's his one not very successful attempt at writing a hard-boiled detective story because, hey, hard-boiled detective stories are a thing that, you know, are selling like gangbusters in the, the 1920s and 1930s. And uh, we should cover that story someday, of course. We might you know, if, if it doesn't get nominated or commissioned, we'll have to, you know, do it on Patreon, I guess. But I think that's actually one that we really need to look at for its intersection with all these different genres that we like to like to talk about. And now that I'm really thinking about it, probably is, I don't know, something we might have done as a precursor to recording this, but, <laughs> but that's all right. There's more weird fiction stuff going on in this story, though, besides just, you know, there's a cult that... It was ripping the still beating hearts out of people's chests and Indy's got to stop them because there's also this business with the rocks. I don't think I still understand the business with these rocks. What are these things? These are sacred stones that bring fortune and glory to those who possess them. Fortune and glory, kid. And uh, that's kind of what is meant to be the, uh, you know, person versus self aspect of the movie that they really don't develop. Indy should be struggling with whether or not he wants to give the stones back because he is in pursuit of fortune and glory. That's how the movie ends, right? Willie Scott's saying, I'm surprised you gave the stone back. Meanwhile, as watchers of as the audience of this movie we're not surprised because that was never actually attention that was brought up in the story itself um but that was supposed to be a developed sense of character conflict for indiana jones is he after fortune and glory or is he after doing the right thing um and so Again, this is a prequel, so it's supposed to, if we watch these movies in supposed chronological order, we'll know that when we see Raiders next, Indy is always going to try to do the right thing, even though he's got that sense that he's kind of doing it because he he loves the prestige and the uh, esteem that comes from finding all of these artifacts. So these are magic stones, uh, the Sankara Shankara stones. When you bring them together, they glow. 
one time they'll burn an evil priest and uh, they help bring life to these villages. And they have to do with, with the worship of Shiva, who's the life bringer, the creator. And so two of the stones fall out. The kids are mining in the cave for two reasons. One is because they fe- the people in the palace found records that there were other the other two stones got buried there. And the other reason is they need money to fund their uh, brutal power expansion. Uh, the, the bad guys, the Maharaja, really the Kali priest who makes people drink blood and then controls them. So yeah, that's what's going on with the stones. Right. All that stuff about the stones, that's the text. That's all stuff that is said in the movie. What I'm asking is about what's not said in the movie. What I want to know is how do they glow? What's in them that makes them glow? Why does that happen when they're together? And why do they have the power to like bring fertility to crops? Because that's not a real thing in the, in the real world. So what's the deal with these? I just did the best I could answering that question, but I have no idea. It's it's not in the movie. <laughs> so I think there are probably two broad categories of you know answers to the question that I'm I'm trying to get you to answer, and you are doing your best to evade, which is really just is how we how we function here on this show. Anyway, sometimes I, I, I refuse to answer. I mean, you just outright refuse many times, and then I'll just ask you again and again, which might be what's happening here. But at any rate, I think there are probably two broad categories, and I think the first one that I'm going to pitch here is is certainly the way that it actually just functions in the movie and and the series of movies, which you know you said earlier that uh, Raiders and The Last Crusade both are stories about Christian magic at work, although I would suggest perhaps that um, actually Christianity is kind of irrelevant to Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's an Old Testament story, whereas uh, Last Crusade is the New Testament story. But we can say Judeo-Christian magic. There are these artifacts that have supernatural properties that uh, some of which is actually mentioned in in the case of Raiders, right, is actually in the text of Scripture. And then in the case of uh, Last Crusade is uh, Apocrypha, Christian Apocrypha. Um, So yeah, this actually is perhaps just another movie movie that's dealing with a type of religious magic, but it's taking that away from the Abrahamic religions and uh, putting it here in Hinduism. And that's clearly kind of the answer, I guess, that there's just, you know, this is a world where religious magic works. But I kind of want to take this story in isolation because I feel like these rocks are a real element of this as a weird fiction story that like, these are clearly from space. These are clearly like, you know, old ones artifacts or something like that that have been incorporated into this mundane human religion that doesn't really know what they are, right? That these are actually from like, you know, these are tools from some ancient space aliens. One missed opportunity that this movie has is bringing the five stones together. Like there's one missing, the children are in the mines, they find the fifth stone, Indy needs to get one back and sep- like scatter the stones. The, the storytelling isn't really about the stones. The stones are the MacGuffin. But the movie misses an opportunity to tighten itself up by having there be two missing stones in order to justify all the child slavery that we see. One thing, I mean, I don't know if we're going to story doctor this or not, but I'll just say here, one thing I would do to doctor the script is to have Indy end up in a village that the adults are gone 
And so there are only children. And it's the adults who have been taken by these raiders from Pancot Palace. And then it's adults in the mine. We can still keep the Maharaja as a child. So Short Round has someone to fight. But then that would give Short Round something to do in the village scene so that he's like trying to interact and play with the children and learn through like kid charade games what's going on. That would be really cool for me to see um, and would just make Short Round a really more awesome character than he already is. And then to have instead of just like they had found two stones before they stole this village stone to have the mining pay off in some way, because otherwise it's just gratuitous slavery with really just an excuse to build a set so that they can go on a minecart ride, which is what they wanted to do in Raiders. So that's one thing I would do to maybe change the movie a little bit um, and have short round go around like burning a bunch of adults who have drank in the, the blood of Kali or something. But yeah, I the children's slavery bit, children are not going to be the best miners and not going to be incentivized to look for stones because they know they're just either going to be killed or be forced into the zombie-like state from drinking the blood. So not having those two other stones show up to give us a indie, tell us what's going to happen when all five stones are brought together. So Kali's going to return and Kali is really an old one. That's a story I want to hear told. That would be awesome, but that's not here. The the enslaved kids in this film are, well, they're kind of the Ewoks of this movie. Oh my God. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I've been I mean, trying not to say it. I'm so <laughs> well, tired of Ewok village beating the empire. I don't want to see it in any movie. And I wish I hadn't seen it in this one. Yeah. It's the thing that doesn't really work in the film, but that you just learn to accept as being part of the film and part of the, the world. But yeah, that's the thing that definitely, or one of the things that I think you could take out, should take out and would make this stronger. I, I don't actually mind so much that the we don't find the other stones in fact actually i think i kind of prefer that we that we don't find them that this is not a story about finding the stones it's not it's not epic the story is not epic on that scale and and that i'm actually really in favor of but one of the things that is really a mess about how these stones work what they're for is that we are told in the village that the stone is what brings fertility it, you know, brings fortune to the the village, but then when Indy returns, the same person who told him that says, "We knew that you were, had defeated the bad guys because <laughs> yesterday, because it's a two day journey, you know, to the palace from the village. Uh, yesterday, crops started growing again. Life returned to the, the village, so we knew you were coming back. So it's not the presence of the stone." <laughs> in the village because they don't have it yet. And so, you know, that's kind of a, that's just, a, you know, a little bit of sloppy storytelling there, except that it's also really interesting in that it lines up with something else that we talk about all the time, which is that this is kind of a grail quest, right? Like every hardboiled detective ever, Indiana Jones in this film is a, a type of uh, paladin, a type of knight on a grail quest. And in this case, what they need the grail for is to you know bring back the fertility to the kingdom, except that it turns out, as it does in grail quest stories in medieval romance, uh, it turns out that the grail itself is not actually, or the object, the mystical object itself is not actually what's bringing fertility and security and prosperity to the region. It is the morality of the rulers. And so the magic really works when Indy has overthrown the evil rulers, right? So this is, you know, we, we said that this is not a story that's dealing with Christian magic, but it is definitely dealing with, you know, Christian medieval Christian political philosophy. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, and that makes sense of the ending. This movie does have a lot of, you know, tight structural choices, decisions that are called back to and things like that. Uh, the, you know, the elder talks about how the stone was taken. You're right. It's by evil people. Even the Maharaja is evil. That's one of the reasons why they weren't allowed to film in India, by the way, is because India objected to the use of the, the Maharaja in this context, in the context of this movie. But um, you're right to point out that, you know, maybe the village started to return to a verdant state again once Short Round burns the Maharaja and just says, you were in the black sleep of Kali and then runs away and gets on a mine cart and <laughs> goes on an adventure. <laughs> well, I think we, we have delayed long enough uh, not talking about the roller coaster ride that is the entirety of the third act of this film. But we should talk about this story through the lens of adventure fiction now. Yeah. So, I yeah, we've kind of been interweaving these two ideas together a lot. But the, what makes this movie an adventure movie is the prologue, the short first act and the third act. And and we talked about that iconic moment of Indy being bat, backlit in blue as the transition moment of it becoming an adventure film again. And um, also an action movie. Lots of fighting takes place here as well. But I think what really cements this film as an adventure movie or what makes it work as an adventure movie is this litany of adventures that Indy went on, you know, first with Wuhan, who gets killed in the club Obi-Wan and says, we have gone on many adventures together, Indy. But I will go on this final one alone, or something along those lines. I mean, it's a it's a ridiculous line. But then you're like, okay, Indy's been doing a lot of adventuring in the in Asia, at least uh, broadly speaking, the continent. And this is one of his partners. I guess he's working with both Wuhan and Short Round at the same time. But the movie doesn't feel like that's the case. And then at the dinner scene, at the banquet scene. The Prime Minister talks about Indy's past adventures in Honduras and Madagascar, and this all really sets the tone that this guy is an experienced adventurer, everyone knows who he is, even the leaders of countries, and so we get our heroic resume, basically, of Indiana Jones in this movie, which is something we kind of don't get in Raiders. He just kind of appears on the scene. And so this movie's trying to do a lot more work to set up Indiana Jones as a heroic figure or at least a roguish figure in some sense. And then he's, you know, he fights, he swings around on his whip. He makes crazy decisions, you know, like short round says he's not nuts. He's crazy. Right. So we have (laughs) all this stuff going on in this movie that really cements Indiana Jones as primarily an adventurer, not an occult detective. Uh, Part of what cements that is, of course, that he's having fun this is not a bad day for him, right? This is not a a case that he wishes he didn't have to take. He's into the fortune and glory. And frankly, he's just having a good, a good time. And and that's actually part of the, the banter between Indiana Jones and Willie Scott is, you know, she's uh, talking about how this is not her idea of a good time. Right. And then they have that final kiss where, um, 
uh, you know, somehow the entire village has realized that they're just extras in their story and right. are just watching right. them and then cheering. It's very creepy and also colonializing and terrible. Yeah. Let me talk about that kiss for a moment, because that disturbed me in a way I wasn't quite prepared for. And here's why. Here's why it disturbed me. Short Round covers his eyes. Uh, there's a shot of Short Round who's like, you, and he covers his eyes when they're about to kiss. But earlier in the movie, and that's for the kids, right? That's fine. Short Round's there for the kids. He's a much better character than I remember. I love him in this movie. Earlier in the movie, Indiana Jones and Willie Scott are doing some really like sexually explicit banter about like, you know, how they're going to have sex with each other. And then they realize like they're not because neither of them is that easy and they have to play, play a certain role, I guess. And then they split rooms, right? And this is where Indy gets attacked. And Indy thinks Willie Scott's going to be knocking on his door in four and a half minutes. Willie Scott thinks she, Indy's going to go by in five minutes. But when we cut into Indy's room, when he walks into his room and he's getting ready, Short Round is asleep on a chaise lounge <laughs> with his hat covering <laughs> his eyes. And Indy's prepared for Willie Scott to come into the room in four and a half minutes and sleep with him. Earlier, though, Short Round tells Indy, you know, like, Indy's like, I'm going to go check on Willie. And he's like, that that's all you should do. And then... He says, tell me everything afterwards. So it's like really weird. But this, so this kissing at the end is like, why is this the thing that's upsetting short round? And it just like called back to that whole scene before Indy gets attacked in his bedroom and none of it really works. And it's kind of super upsetting when you think about it. Short Round is gumbified a little bit in in this movie, right? He's whatever the scene requires of him. He's perhaps not all that consistent, though. I like the Short Round there in the in the palace way better than at the, at the end. Like I think you know, Act One, well, prologue, Act One, and Act Two, Short Round. That's the Short Round I like. Act Three, Short Round, less so. I mean, I mean, the, all the shenanigans in the minecart. I just, I just don't ever need that uh, again in in my life. I just want to want that to go away. But no, you're absolutely right about that inconsistency with with short round. I think there's some other things that could have been done with short round as well with uh, in, in terms of of Wuhan who's a really interesting character. Like I want to know more about him. I'm going to take a step back from that though before I pitch my idea about that to you Brandon, which is just to think about this again as a sequel that is actually a prequel, which I don't think I, I did at some point realize, but I don't think I have actually seen the film since I learned that you know think you're a kid you're just like this is the next one and this was the one i liked better so you know i i watched it more than raiders and wasn't paying attention to the dates and that sort of thing at that point but it's a prequel and the arc is as you say it's indiana jones discovering that he doesn't actually want to be a scoundrel anymore that he would like to be a hero and so then chronologically speaking the next movie raiders of the lost ark opens with government experts coming to him for help. We're not government experts, government agents coming to him as the expert for help with an archaeological adventure that they you know, need him to go on for geopolitical reasons because Nazis, right? And so what is it actually that makes Indiana Jones the expert there is, I guess, that he's got this past as an adventurer, right? That he's not just an ivory tower academic, but that he's also got this past as an adventurer. And so I was expecting going into this film, having you know discovered that without having watched the film again. I went into this viewing on the operating on the assumption that at this point, Indiana Jones is 
a, a tomb robber. He's just an adventurer. He's someone who's working in private enterprise uh, on his own, perhaps. Maybe he's mercenary. He works, you know, for other people. People hire him to go find specific things for them, which clearly that's the whole Nerhachi business. That's what's happened here. And therefore, he is not actually in academia, which also makes sense because the thing that we know about him from Raiders of the Lost Ark is that when he was a grad student, he was sleeping with his advisor's daughter, which is definitely how you don't get a job after grad school, right? And so that's what I thought the Ark was. I thought it was going to be Indiana Jones can't get a job at a university because he's had this falling out with his advisor because of Marion. And this is going to be part of how he, you know, rehabilitates with that somehow. It's going to be part of that arc. But actually everyone in this movie is calling him an eminent archaeologist and an eminent professor. The prime minister has heard of him, heard about him when he was doing his own education at Oxford, right? Part of this, you know, elite Western university system because Indiana Jones is publishing papers, apparently. And that doesn't make any sense at all to me. So that's just one of the real glaring ways in which they've not really thought through the backstory of this character. But both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have backed away from this movie. Uh, They think it's a work that is uh, reflecting their own unhappiness and cynicism at the time when they were making it. Because they were both like breaking up with women, which is why I find the opening scene kind of like horrible on some level is Indy threatening the life of Willie Scott um, and then punching a woman in the face by accident as he's trying to get the uh, vial of antidote. And I like the movie a lot more than I than I used to. But I, I recognize why Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have both kind of backed away from it. They haven't disavowed it completely, but they they just say, we made this during a dark time in our lives and we made a really dark movie. And it is, uh, you know, uh, yeah, but the story arc of Indy is really, I, you're right. The core of it is him going from a, a scoundrel to a hero, basically. And I think that they tried, the writers of this movie tried to do that as best they could. It's just not deeply developed because we have a 20 minute mind cart scene instead of good dialogue explaining Indy's uh, motivations as a character. <laughs> I had not realized that uh, those comments from Lucas and Spielberg there, but I guess this, this is kind of redemption story then for Spielberg too, because he marries Willie Scott. He marries Kate yeah, Capshaw. They're still married today. They've got like five or six kids together. Yeah. So. Two adopted kids and, and a couple biological kids. And uh, they met on this movie and Steven Spielberg was breaking up with his girlfriend at the time, who then came back to him while he was making this movie, potentially starting a relationship with Kate Capshaw. And then he and his ex got back together and ended up getting married for four years. And then Steven Spielberg and Kate Capshaw got married in 91. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know a lot more about this than than, than I do. I guess I thought they had gotten married sort of like right after this, but uh, yeah. Okay. Clearly that's not the case, but yeah, I want to go back just to thinking about Indy's backstory here and how, you know, they, they could have written a better arc for him, or at least an arc that works better in the whole series rather than an arc that maybe works just fine for this film. And to think about Wuhan as well. Wuhan's a really interesting character, right? He's got this line that uh, you paraphrased 
uh, very poorly, but I cannot correct any better <laughs> about like, he's, you know, he's going to be the first one to die, right? They've had adventures together. He's about to go have an adventure. That's actually a line from Peter Pan. Death is an awful yes. big adventure. Yes. Um, that That's what's going on there. But at any rate, he's going first. And you get, I, I get some real pathos in that scene, right? This idea that they have been a team for a long time. There's a bond there. And I mean, I don't really think that, you know, being shot to death, you know, a person is going to talk like that, really. But in, you know, the world of fiction, to be expressing this sense that part of what is upsetting him about dying is that he's going to leave Indy, like that there's a real bond there between them. I think that what this story needs then is for Short Round not also to already be on this team, but the, for them to accidentally meet Short Round. And like, this is just the moment where Short Round gets conscripted onto the plane because well, you can't stay in Shanghai because Lao She is going to, you know, identify you and kill you because he's the gangster who runs Shanghai, right? So you've got to come with us on this plane. And I'm sorry about that. And that Short Round then becomes the new Wuhan, right? Someone for uh, Indiana Jones to, to mentor and to start developing a real bond with, right? To kind of raise as a kind of adopted kid, or not raise because they're just having this one adventure, but to relate with as a, a sort of a, a kid, right? As something of a, a found family there. And that the arc that happens for Indiana Jones then deciding that it's time for him to go try to get a job as a professor somewhere, anywhere, is twofold. One, that, you know, the tomb robbing, the mercenary archaeology for hire is not good for a lot of different reasons, uh, but that also he's got some regret about how things worked out with Marion Ravenswood, right? That he realizes that also maybe he lost an opportunity to actually just settle down, be a professor, you know, during the school year, go on digs over the summer and, and get married to Marion Ravenwood and you know, settle down to that type of a, a life, have a family. And that there are sort of those two things working there that bring him into the world where he's the person that the, uh, the X-Files dudes go to when they need an expert. Yeah, one one thing I was poking around the Indiana Jones subreddit, uh, which is a pretty fun place to be if you need an hour to kill, I suppose. But one commenter uh, was talking about Short Round, and they pointed out that like Short Round should have come back in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull instead of Mutt, and that would have oh, been yeah. such a much more satisfying type of story to tell. And I agree, Short Round's awesome in this movie and Indy clearly loves short round and short round you know in for some reason the writers thought there needed to be some kind of uh, declaration of love in this movie you know short round saying i love you indiana jones you're my best friend it's beautiful it's this beautiful moment and this is a prequel and then we never see short round again and short round carries this movie in a lot of ways <laughs> that surprised me. And uh, I just, I just wish we could see short round again. That would be so great. I, I agree. I would love to see this movie just labeled short round in the temple of doom. Right. And, you know, yeah. to see him as the sort of point of view character would be amazing. It's real clear that even by the time that they made last crusade, that they wanted to distance themselves from this film, right. That this was not something they really thought highly of and just wanted to pretend it didn't ever happen. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. Uh, so I think we've done a, a decent job anyway, off the cuff, of doing something totally out of our normal wheelhouse, thinking about this movie through these two lenses, weird fiction and adventure fiction. Let me just ask you, Brandon, if you had to pick one of those genres to say is that the principal genre of this story, weird fiction or adventure fiction, which would you say it is? It's an adventure movie. 
to me, that's the principal genre. It's part of what makes the movie so messy in really interesting ways. Um, this is this is primarily an adventure movie. Uh, we show up for Indy to do stunts, uh, not to become evil from drinking the blood of Kali. And the movie delivers uh, not to be drinking like the the blood of whatever blessed by Kali or cursed. I don't know what they call it in. <laughs> whatever fake version of Kali worship they have in this movie. But uh, to me, this is principally an adventure movie. The vast majority of the screen time is given to Indiana Jones doing adventure stuff. What, what, what did you, what was your feeling? Well, I think that that answer is right, but that's not been my emotional experience of this film as a kid. The reason I liked this movie better than Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was a kid is because of the second act. I was really interested in a totally morbid and creepy way in ripping out people's hearts. I mean, I wasn't interested in learning how to do that, right? But to me, that was the, that was the stuff that I really liked. That was the moment where I would stop building the Legos and actually pay attention to what was happening on the screen. And so I was a little surprised watching the film this time to realize that that's only one really of, of four parts to this movie. And wow, was I surprised at how freaking long the roller coaster ride is. I mean, it just, that just goes on for ever. I like the bridge stuff at the end, actually, though I think that also goes on a little too long. Uh, maybe the whole third act goes on a little too long, but I might feel that way about every single story that's ever been, <laughs> ever been, ever been penned, I suppose. But I think that if you got rid of the roller coaster ride, actually, uh, you could even keep the prologue, which I definitely want kept. But I think if you got rid of the roller coaster ride, I think that actually goes a long way to making this more of a weird fiction movie than an adventure movie. I think that roller coaster ride is one of one of two elements that I would change to make this a you know a weird fiction forward movie rather than or or maybe a better way to put that a weird fiction movie with some adventure elements rather than an adventure fiction movie with some weird elements. Right. Yeah. The roller coaster ride is the core problem of this movie. I think it's, it just, it just kills the flow of the third act, which is so kinetic and actiony. And we got Niwak village scene and, um, you know, a redemption story for the Maharaja. And, uh, I just think that goes on too long. I, I also like the bridge scene stuff. The, the British showing up at the end to shoot people who, Everybody's basically out of danger. Real problem for me. That's the thing. Other thing I would change primarily about the movie. Yeah, I was real unclear even sort of what was going on there, you know, why they're taking military action in that moment. I'm glad that he was there. I'm glad the the captain who... Uh, should have been a colonel because he's old. Should have been a colonel, not a captain, or at least a major. I mean, goodness, <laughs> right. he's stuck as an O three. That's uh, that's that's horrible. Like it just suggests that he's not very good at his job. Maybe that's what they wanted to suggest. He was certainly kind of bumbling in the in the conversation. So maybe that's what they wanted. But anyway, I like that he's there in the exposition scene. He's an excellent character there, but we don't need him to come back at the end. He he doesn't serve any purpose really at all. I think the other principal obstacle to this being a, a weird fiction movie is the music. It's John Williams. John Williams is why we all think this is an adventure movie and not a weird fiction movie. Uh, you get someone else to do that score and those scenes in act two and act three even are going to feel a lot different because John Williams is scoring this like it's, you know, swashbuckling. It's a swashbuckling score. Uh, but you could have gotten Jerry Goldsmith in here to scare the crap out of us and we might think that this movie is different, even with the roller coaster scene. 
I think that's an awesome observation. The part of the reason why this movie feels so disjointed is the bombastic soundtrack in the second act. We need a horror soundtrack in the second act. We need dark music, uh, not the trumpets and fanfare. Um, and and just if, if you tighten up, if you change the music in the second act, it would really emphasize the fact that this is a horror movie. This is, this is a horror movie, first and foremost, with some adventure trappings in it. Yeah, I think you could almost just have some fun and maybe someone on the internet has done this or I don't know, someone listening could do this. I would be really grateful for it. You could just take the Jerry Goldsmith score to Alien and just like lay it over <laughs> Act 2 especially <laughs> and I think even Act 3 and like let's just see how that works. Though I wouldn't want to lose the way that John Williams scores the chanting, which is just – I was really impressed by by that music uh, by that musical piece that the, the the ritual that was actually really really well done. But this is also one of the ways even that Aliens as a film signals that it's in a different genre than Alien is that they've got they brought James Horner in to do a space adventure score. Uh, you know that's basically actually um, variations on his Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan score. And it's it just audibly, right? It just tells us how we're supposed to feel in those scenes. Uh, and it's a different feeling movie than the the first Alien film. And I think that's that's happening here too, right? Just the way that works on our subconscious tells us how we're supposed to be reacting emotionally to these scenes that undercuts the real dread and horror of the second act where, yeah, we've just got like, you know, trumpet fanfares. Right. Although I wouldn't change anything about short rounds theme, which I just think is so nicely interwoven throughout the score and is a beautiful little piece of music to begin with. Right. And, you know, Jerry Goldsmith is the person I really want to have scored this film. Jerry Goldsmith can do that music too. In fact, Jerry Goldsmith and, and John Williams are really sort of the two composers, right, of the 70s and 80s. But John Williams is famous for getting to score all the good movies and Jerry Goldsmith, for the most part, there are some real notable exceptions, but for the most part, for the most part, got to score really bad movies or at least mediocre movies, right? So like John Williams got to do Superman, Jerry Goldsmith got to do Supergirl, but you can actually compare those two scores, right? They're the same genre uh, made in the same era, and you can get a real sense of uh, there would be a lot more subtlety to the way that Jerry Goldsmith would have scored this film that I think would have really emphasized that uh, that dread and the weird fictionness. And uh, uh, it's a movie that exists in my dreams, if not uh, if not actually in the real world. Yeah, I actually started watching Logan's Run again, which was another Jerry Goldsmith oh, yeah. score. And it opens, you know, with uh, shots of the miniatures of the city that everybody lives in. And they just look like total garbage. Even for the time, the miniature sets look terrible. <laughs> and I was like, why is the music so much better than these shots? And then Com composed uh, by Jerry Goldsmith pops up on the screen. I'm like, ah, that's that's why that's why the music doesn't fit how bad the shots are in this movie. And Jerry Goldsmith was notorious for that, just making incredible scores that are just better than the than the movies that they're in. But somehow we were talking about Jerry Goldsmith now instead of Temple of Doom. I wonder, Glenn, if you want to do uh, just a quick rating thing of, of how we'd rate the movie and maybe a few final thoughts here. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. What's the rating system that you've got in mind here? Uh, just the typical, you know, five-star system. 
Five, okay. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Letter grades. I mean, that's my day job is giving people letter grades, right? So that's, <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, yeah. You know, uh, this is a four star movie, right? Uh, I don't know if we're doing half stars. If we are, I'd probably give it a four and a half star. I think there's some great, uh, certainly the, it's it's visually stunning. John Williams's score, even though I want to replace it with something by Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams' score is awesome, uh, including, uh, well, I guess it's not actually his score, but the music is awesome, including the use of uh, Anything Goes by Cole Porter as the the opening. Uh, the acting, for the most part, is great in this film. There are some exceptions to that, but you know, the core characters, you know, Indy, uh, Willie Scott, Short Round, they're, they're excellent. The sets are all really awesome. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, a well-crafted film. Uh, I think, you know, where it goes wrong, where it has these weaknesses are, are really in the script. Right. I, I agree. This is a four-star movie, but, you know, some of the movies, a two-star movie and some is a five-star five movie, you know, it's a, but it doesn't average out to three. It's like the five-star <laughs> <Right>. elements <laughs> are weighted in the direction of five stars. To me, this is a four-star movie. That really surprised me going into it. As I've said many times, this movie is a, is a mess, but it's not a bad movie. It's singular. There's, there's no other movie like it. It just resists kind of a coherent whole like the some of the parts are legitimately greater than the whole of this movie and it tells a story in a way we don't tell heroic stories really that often it's rooted in contingent events everything that happens could have happened in a different way and Indy could have gone somewhere else he could have not ended up in this village willie scott could have not come along uh short round might be pretty necessary but this has my favorite indiana jones performance by harrison ford in it hands down um, and I, I really loved it. it. It it reminds me almost of a Kubrick movie in a certain way, uh, especially something like Eyes Wide Shut because of how the genres feel so disjointed, but it creates something totally unique. And you can look at this movie through so many different lenses and get different things out of it. The same way you can approach uh, Eyes Wide Shut, for instance, in, uh, through the lens of many genres and get different readings of it. So yeah, I'm surprised to say this. I loved this movie. Uh, I'm not going to keep my kid from watching it when they get into Indiana Jones. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm surprised. I really liked it. And it's it's a strange and singular movie. I recommend it. And I didn't think I was going to say that uh, when when we decided to do this episode. No, I I really expected a lot more schlock than than we got. I was really surprised. I came into this also expecting, you know, watching it for the first time literally in decades, first time yeah, you know, as an as an adult, uh, expecting to really uh, be revisiting something that was really important to me as a child and realizing just how awful it was. But no, I did I did not feel that way about it at at all. And um, boy, I also, Brandon, I have to say, I think. I really want somewhere, you know, in the dreaming, in Lucian's library, in the dreaming, for there to be a version of this film that's directed by Stanley Kubrick and scored by Jerry Goldsmith. Ugh. I don't want to unwish this one, but wow, I would love to see that movie. That, I think it would be an astonishingly good movie, like with none of the issues we have uh, with 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 it as the way it was written and shot. I mean, George Lucas is he's a pulp writer. And he needs a lot of help to get his stories across. I think we can say that non-controversially. Um, but these two screenwriters, I think, I would have brought in a third screenwriter who had a, f a little bit 
more of a foot in the genres this movie's approaching instead of relying on 30s film tropes and screwball. Um, but in any event, yeah, I, I really love this movie. And, and it's really Harrison Ford's performance that sells me on it and short rounds. All right. Well, I think we, we are just veering over and over again into you know, story doctoring and uh, <laughs> envisioning different versions of this film. So I think I think that's about all we want to say about this one. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thank you again so much for supporting the network, for supporting Elder Sign, for being engaged. We hope you enjoyed our chat about this movie. And uh, I certainly enjoyed revisiting it again. So thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to uh, uh, take about an hour and a half of your time to talk about something maybe you haven't thought about in a long time. Yeah, thank you so much to all of you out there. We would not have gotten to 100 episodes of this show if it weren't for our just totally amazing, totally awesome audience. We really appreciate that you're here with us. And uh, and we look forward to having you with us on the next episode, which is going to be our last episode of the year. It's going to be our 2021 year in review. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs> <laughs>